All right, beloved. Peace, powerful. It's time for another great episode of Get On Code. All right. Welcome to Get On Code, the Fly Guy Show, which is a series of melanated conversations focused on empowerment, health, wealth, and knowledge of self. People think in binary choices because they are conditioned to. And on the wall was a picture of a wolf and a lion. I think the wolf was the Democratic Party, the lion was the Republicans. But the drug trade and all these illegal stuff that uh, people do, that's still economics. It's just that they couldn't do it in a traditional system. We're talking about melanated wealth. So we can build wealth, but we just, for some reason, don't seem to be able to transfer it. You had a great experience. Fine. That means nothing. What were you told as a child about education? You had to be how many times better? Every impression without an expression becomes depression. Wow. It looked, can you hear me, Brother Chris? Yes, sir. Okay, it looks like my camera went out. So <laughs> I'm not sure I'm not sure what's happening. This is this is the second time this has happened to me, but it's all good. It's time for another great episode of Get On Code. And you have introduced me to this uh, young man who is a millionaire mentor. Has a millionaire mentorship show. Does a lot of great things with Life Skills Institute. So why don't you take the uh, quick moment and introduce the gentleman who wrote a foreword in your great book, The Gospel of Afronomics Theology. Introduce the good brother. Okay. Uh, I have the pleasure and the privilege of introducing this elder, uh, Dr. Herbert Harris, who wrote the foreword to my book, GOAT, Gospel of Afronomics Theology. And Dr. Harris is known for what I call the <laughs> Think and Grow Rich for African People which is called the 12 Universal Laws of Success. Uh, I first read this in college. I read the first edition, and this is the second edition. Uh, it may be small, but it's very powerful, very compact, and very concentrated. I say, well, good to have you here, Dr. Harris, man. I'm really impressed. When I read your foreword, and then I was told about what you're doing, I said, man, we got to get on code and get this brother here, man. So, <laughs> hey, man, welcome to the show. Welcome to the platform. Thank you for doing what you're doing. Well, it is my pleasure. You know, I don't think there's anything better. You know, I have to get used to being called an elder, you know, because the, the <laughs> elders I know used to be, man, that I'm like, hey, I'm, I'm a young elder. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm an elder in training. All right. You're an elder in wisdom, right? <laughs> that sounds good. That sounds good. That sounds good. But That's one, of, one of the things that really uh, pleases me is the fact that you all are doing what you're doing. That it's so important for young black men to, to communicate information that is so powerful that can help others guide the way and so mm. you know as malcolm said you can't leave your education up to somebody else nobody's going to give you a grant to finance your freedom and so it's people like you that you know, what you all are doing that will help guide our people to the promised land where they need to be i say i say i say yo well look man before we get into the spiritual principles of solving the race problem 
tell us a little bit about the part that really captured my interest, the millionaire part. I, I love talking with M's. <laughs> you know, you have an M by your name, not yeah. an MD. I like the MD, but, uh -huh. you know, I like the PhD, but uh -huh. I like the M. So uh, tell me about the Millionaire Mentorship Show. Well, thank you so much for asking. This is a program, a weekly uh, podcast that we do. And we do a couple of things. One, we try to give a message to make it a teaching platform. Two, we like to introduce, uh, we interview some powerful people. I see we've had a number of the same people. We've had George Frazier, Les Brown, uh, Stedman Graham, uh, a host of people of different perspectives. And the idea is to give value information that can help you create wealth. I like, I use the term millionaire mentor because that gets people's attention, but it's really about helping you create value in yourself. One by a message, but two also by seeing what others have done. And so the millionaire mentorship show, our goal is to expose folks to the message of empowerment and to hear from others who have had challenges. When Les talks about some of the things he's gone through, you got to say, man, if, you know, if he could do it, I can do it. And so that's the, the essence of the Millionaire Mentorship Show, to spread the word that we have the capacity to be what we want to be, do what we want to do, and have whatever we want to have. If it's a million dollars, so be it. If it's a transformational figure, so be it. But whatever you desire, we have the power to get it. Hmm. Hmm. Well, I'm going to kind of do something a little different. I'm going to kind of sit back and I'm going to let Brother Chris, you know, Brother Zoom. Zumbi. Yes. <laughs> okay. You know, I had a chance to kind of go through your book and look at those 12 laws uh, that you put together. Um, but let me shift gears back to the main thing about the spiritual aspect of solving the race problem in America. Now, with yourself being an elder, I'm sure you've heard this from the Old Testament, where the question had been asked, how can you love that which is invisible, God, the universe, but yet hate that which you see that is visible daily? How do you think people deal with that question if they deal with it at all? I think most people don't deal with it because, <laughs> you know, because so many people are so wrapped up in what's right in front of them, the, mm. their present condition, their present situation, and then their past history. You know, many people keep re reliving their history over and over again. And so that idea of if you can, how can you live something you love, something you cannot see and hate that which you can see really creates that that contradiction. Mm. The the second commandment really says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And so when you can if you can see another person as yourself, then you won't hate them anymore. So when people can't make that connection, it's because they have a spiritual disconnection. They don't really know who they are. They're like the prodigal son in the far country, wandering around in a, in a land of deception and untruths. Mm, I see. Um, there's something that Elijah Muhammad used to say. Whenever I see a black man, I'm looking at God. 
And the way I interpret it as I see the divinity within you. Do you think that a lack of seeing the divinity within the human family has fueled this race issue, not only in America, but throughout the planet? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and this is one of the reasons that we talk about the spiritual solution. Every mm. other solution has failed. The courts have failed. I mean, we look back from um, the Dred Scott decision in 1857 that a black man had no rights, <laughs> that a court had was bound to respect, or the Plessy versus Ferguson in uh, mm. 1896 that uh, separate but equal. And, and even on up to today, the, that separate but equal statute stayed on the books until really 1956 with the school, the Brown versus the Board of Education. And so the courts just reflect a hatred, a, a racism within the people themselves. Mm-hmm. And so as a result, until everybody can see each other as human beings, as created beings of that God that we all claim to worship, that invisible God that we claim to worship, then if we worship that God, then man is the creation of that God, then we should worship man, have respect for man in the same way that we have respect for God. Racism undermines that. Mm. Okay. And and another word that comes up when we mention racism is xenophobia. Mm. And, and I think, you know, if we go back to the fall of the Moors, we begin to see this xenophobia emerge and I dare say institutionalize. You know, in the book, I wrote a letter to the potential white ally and I talked about racism in a formula where R equals F. P squared. Racism equals fear times prejudice times power. Mm. Okay. And so I wanted to get your thoughts on was, would that mathematical equation be accurate in terms of describing what we now call today racism? I think it's an aspect of it. You know, mm. is that fear, as you say, fear, prejudice, and power. It all goes back to power. If we look at Mm. slavery, slavery was really an economic engine. One of the the unique things about the United States, you know, in your book, you talk a lot about economics. Mm -hmm. And any country that has three or four hundred years of free labor (laughs) has got to be a a great country, you know, even if you squander it, you know. Mm -hmm. And so power is and I'll even say power and profit. I, I, I call it the, the uh, power, profit, and pleasure, mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the unholy three. And right. so basically the, the whole slave paradigm exists because of profit, the desire to get work people for free, the low mm-hmm. wages. It, it deals with pleasure because anyone would love to be master over another being. I mean, that's a, that's a fiendish pleasure, but where you own people who have to do whatever you want them to do. And so pleasure and then power, profit, the ability to be in control. One of the things that's really happening in America right now is really about the power, that the fact that black and brown people are becoming a majority 
and white people are doing everything they can to maintain the power be out of fear. That goes back to your first principle, out of fear. Mm. And I think that the fear that they have is that we would treat them the way that they had treated us. Mm. <laughs> you know, I once asked a, a, a white fellow, I said, why do you buy so many guns? He said, well, there, one day there's going to be a race riot. I said, well, why do you think that? He said, because if black people treated white people the way that white people have treated black people, then they'd be ready to kill them all. And I'm like, man, I never thought about it like that. So it's, a, it's an interesting principle that power, pleasure, profit, fear is at the heart of it. Yeah, because, and it's interesting you mentioned that. I, I kind of coined it. Uh, I was sitting in a room uh, where I'm the only melanated person in there. And I said that those classified as white have a unique disease. I call it the fear of a black planet syndrome. Mm. Where, and when I say black, I'm talking black, brown, red, and yellow. Okay you're already seeing white people at a negative birth rate. Mm -hmm. Okay. And you're also beginning to see dark skinned faces in positions of authority and power, be it on a local county, state, federal, global levels. And older whites are struggling to deal in this new world where now you have to deal with dark skinned people on an even playing field. You see? Yeah. So, so, you know, how much of that plays another factor in, you know, I, I guess in inflaming this whole race issue, you talked about power. And I guess I also want to throw reparations into the mix. Mm. Okay. Yeah, you, yeah, you just really muddied the water there, buddy. <laughs> 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 yes, sir. Well, yeah. well, well, when we look at the power dynamic, mm. you'll notice and, and it's something black people don't really seem to have that same relationship with power that white people do. It, it, it's interesting. Mm. And so when you look at a lot of the political progress right now and you start going back historically, when you had cities like um, Mayor, was it Hatcher in, uh, in um, was it Indiana? Uh, and Hatcher was like one of the first major black mayors of a, large city, and then uh, Carl Stokes when he became the mayor of Cleveland. So literally, the democratic process had worked. Uh, mayor Hatcher was Gary, Indiana. So the democratic process worked, and so the only difference was now you had a black mayor. White people responding to that power dynamic began to literally dismantle the city of Cleveland, what had been suburbs like Cleveland Heights, or Shaker Heights, and these other places, Warrensville Heights, these places now, through the state legislature, they began to incorporate and become separate towns from Cleveland, taking away the tax base. And so this idea of being in power, they are afraid to share that power, I guess because they think that we will act like they act. And that's a scary thought for them because they know themselves. If you notice how black people are so eager to forgive, that's mm. something, you know, you can come in and kill nine people in a church, and the first thing somebody says is, I forgive. Mm. 
white people don't act like that. Okay, you get a paradigm that, that, that you get the paradigm of never, never forget, and and to spend the next fifty years trying to get you for whatever you did, and so that's a, a different dynamic. And so this this power thing is at the heart of everything. So as the political process begins to grow, the one of the you know I was you were talking about the Republicans and the Democrats, the. The Republicans have an agenda. There's a reason why every Republican says the same thing. <laughs> Everyone has the same opinion on situations. Why, you know, a hundred and some of them said the election was stolen when there was no factual basis for it. And so this agenda that they have is an agenda to maintain the power dynamic that exists right now and that has existed from the beginning of this country to be in control. As the democratic process takes place, you have more and more black people taking positions of authority. What the Republican, the white people have done is they saw this coming and they said, let us take charge of the state legislatures. Mm. And so once they take charge of the state legislatures, and that's a check and balance, the moment like you take a city like Atlanta, okay. Atlanta had black mayors going back a few years. Okay. Andrew Young, uh, uh, was in uh, Jackson uh, going back and the Atlanta airport was a part of the, the city, the Fulton County, that whole uh, geographical dynamic. That was, that was a part of the Atlanta uh, economic driver, you know, okay. in the airport, you had Pascals, you had many black businesses there. Right. Once the Atlanta began having mayors, the legislatures in becoming Republican, and that was the agenda. Once you can control the legislature, then you can now backflip and transform. So you take the uh, Atlanta, take the airport away from the city. So now they have set up uh, these airport authorities. So that was an economic driver for the city. So they just took that money away, just as they take it away in the tax base. It happened in Charlotte. The airport in Charlotte was a major piece of the, the Charlotte economic engine. But once you had the uh, a black mayor up there and then got another, they said, oh, next thing you know, the legislature takes over. So this, this and this move throughout the country, how can you have, I think, in what, 43 states? <laughs> okay. How can you have uh, bills going? Well, I don't think, I think it's 43 bills in 29, but in a major number of states in the whole country, the same type of bills being driven to basically disenfranchise black people and people of color, uh, uh, anybody who is not of whatever the power dynamic is. Mm. So power is always a driver, always a driver. The thing that neutralizes power is profit. <laughs> profit mm. either works with it or works against it. Mm. So the, the bus boycott, with Dr. King, okay. That was not a moral capitulation. That was a profit equation. When right. black folks stopped riding the buses, the buses started losing money. White people started losing their jobs. And I like, hold on. <laughs> <laughs> you know, right. I don't care what Jesus said. The bus, we're losing money. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so the power and the, and, and the profit dynamic work hand in hand. Mm. Mm. You had mentioned a, a couple of things, and one of the things that was going through my mind while you were 
um, in the dialogue, our, our relationship with power. And what I mean by that is when you see other ethnicities come into the political roundtable, they come with an agenda to get what they desire to have for their particular ethnicity or constituency. Yes. And it seems like for us, we don't do that for whatever reason. I don't know if there's a certain pathology that we have when it comes to power. I know that when the question of reparations was presented first to former President Obama, now to Vice President Kamala Harris, they basically emphatically made it clear that they're not going to do anything specifically for African people because yes. they represent all the people, but yet they will allow others to come in with an agenda that specifically speaks to them. So what what is this 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 uh, pathology that African people have when it comes to power? Uh, it's a learned pathology. Okay. That when we came out of slavery, we literally came out with nothing. Okay. Mm. And during the Reconstruction, we made incredible strides. There were a lot of good white people, the Quakers. Folks came south. They gave land. They 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 started a massive program to educate the slaves. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, even though a person's given their freedom, you still have a 300-year head start on them, one. And literally, they many of the slaves did not have the tools. They couldn't read. They couldn't write. They And so... This good good white folks came south and worked on that and got that mm-hmm. going. Once the the election of uh, 1876, that Tilden election, once that election took place, and there's some serious similarities between that and this last election with the former president, and the south, the north took back the troops from the south. The north literally, after the Reconstruction, literally gave the south back to the very people they had fought and over 600,000 people had died, gave it back to the very people who had lost the war. Wow. And so whatever progress, I mean, we were making great strides. Do you know, 1888, first black man graduated from MIT. Yes. (laughs) Black man from Wilmington, North Carolina, Robert R. Taylor. He, He then took his expertise out with Booker T. Washington. He designed many of the buildings at Tuskegee Institute. MIT helped raise funds for Tuskegee. It was a a huge dynamic. You had a growing black uh, 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 intelligentsia and political operation. But once the Reconstruction ended, once you had Plessy versus Ferguson now li- li- basically legalizing segregation, once these troops were removed from the South, the same people who had lost the war were still in charge and they did not have a spiritual transformation. So they just reapplied slavery under a new name, work contracts. <laughs> okay. And from that, after 1898, they then proceeded with the, the insurrection and Wilmington, North Carolina, which is the only successful coup that has taken place in America. From that point on, they instituted laws disenfranchising black people. 
And every time black people got to a certain point economically, Wilmington, North Carolina, you had black people on the city council. Once that was done, they out of there. You had black people in the Congress. Once that was done, once uh, George, George Henry White left Congress in 1901, I think it was, there was never another black man there for 27 years. And so yeah. what the black consciousness has been learning is that every time you get to a certain point, where you're demonstrating success, economic success, political success, something happens. 1906, Sweet Auburn in Atlanta destroyed that whole district. Uh, Black Wall Street in, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, I mean, literally destroyed that. That's the interest. Yes, destroyed that whole initiative. And so right. if, every time you a black person gets an inch, they're cut down. And so I think what is happening is there's a, it's like, you know, with the pandemic, you, you try to create a, what do they call it, the uh, herd immunity, that there's a, in our book, we talk about the hundredth monkey phenomenon, that when, when people learn a certain lesson over and over again, it really transforms their aspirations. Wow. If you, if you take fleas and put them in a mason jar with the top on it, Okay. They'll jump up and jump up, but after a certain period of time, you can take the top out, and those fleas can't jump out of that jar. Because they have learned that when they hit this certain thing, it hurts, so they learn to jump just a little bit lower. Wow. You know, that kind of reminds me, there was a recording that Dead Prez did, and they talked about an elephant, and they said that when an elephant was an infant, they would tie the elephant to a stake mm -hmm. and the elephant would pull and pull and wasn't able to get that stake out. Now, as the elephant grew, that mentality grew that it was tied. So whenever the elephant was tied, it didn't pull against it, even though it had the strength to make a change. And I would definitely say that we are definitely that 600 pound elephant. We've kind of learned that we are unable to empower ourselves and act in our self-interest. but Brother Dr. Harris, you're changing the minds. <laughs> you're changing the minds with this book that you have, The 12 Universal Laws of Success. I love it. I love it. You're, you're changing minds. And I mean, hey, we've been praying for this information, brother. So we want to say thank you. We want to say asheo. We want to say amen. We want to say everything. Before you continue with your empowerment, um, I'd like to learn a little bit about who you are. So I understand that you're involved with the Unitarian Church. Well, mainly the Unity Church. I've, I do an affiliation, many of the Unitarian churches I've spoken there. And uh, I would consider myself a Unity um, practitioner. I studied in New York under Eric Butterworth. And I worked as Reverend Ike's chief of staff for a couple of years at running the New York Church. And Reverend Ike really taught many of the unity principles, that science of mind. I was the director of the Science of Mind Institute. And so these are, this uh, whole, you might call it new thought philosophy, unity, Unitarian, uh, but unity is a, a church I've spoken in many times. Uh, it, uh, it provides a more cerebral approach to religion. In other words, when we wrote the 12 Universal Laws of Success, it's Bible-based. But what we did, 
the Bible is one of the greatest motivational, transformational books ever written. And you'll find the same principles in the Bible, in the Quran, and in all of the spiritual uh, texts, because truth is truth. Buddha said, as a man thinks, <laughs> so is he. The Bible says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And so these spiritual principles now are able to teach people that living is a skill. That the, the, the premise of the Life Skill Institute is that living is a skill. You have to learn it, you have to practice it, you have to master it. Much of what has happened in the racial dynamic has been to teach us wrong skills, to teach us skills of limitation, skills Ooh. of inferiority. Right. So that whole idea of the, the 12 universal laws of success to give people the, the, the tools to become better people. The same principles that will make you successful can make you free. The, the same principles that can help you see a vision, go for it, and get it done can help you transform your community. One of the issues with racism is just wrong thinking. You know, when... When people think wrong in the in our in solving the race issue in America, we do a piece there where we go into scripture and we are saying how because of this paradigm of racism, people have gotten away from the spiritual principles in the Bible. In the Bible, it, there's a there's a whole paragraph there that says talks about how do you get into heaven, and uh, when they when the um, when the, the person came to approach God. And, uh, you know, God is dividing up, you know, the, the sheep on one side and the, 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 the positive on one side and the negative on the other. And the God said, basically, to paraphrase, he said, uh, uh, when, did, when did you not feed me? When did you not clothe me? When did you not visit me in prison? And the person said, well, God, I, I, you know. I, I, you know, I was there to feed you. I would feed you. I would clothe you. I would visit you in prison. But he said, but when you did it to the least of them, you do it unto me. And so that simple spiritual principle right there says that what white America has done to black Americans is really a sin against God, against the, the principles of truth in the Bible that we all agree on, which lays that foundation for the spiritual transformation that that we have to use our minds. And, and the first law of success is, as a man thinks, so is he. As a man thinks in his heart, how he feels, so is he. Racism is a thought, is a feeling. And so when people have that thought and that feeling, they'll live out a racist life and won't even know it. You notice how people resist, white people resist saying there's systemic racism in Wilmington. We just had a big fight in the city council a few months ago. They didn't want to say that there was systemic racism in America. In the last administration, nobody wanted to say there was systemic racism. Well, the spiritual principle says you can't fix anything unless you acknowledge it. Mm. Mm. <laughs> mm. And so... As long as white people don't acknowledge it, we're never going to get there. 
You know, I used to really believe that we had so much work to do on ourselves. And we do, because we've been taught to be slaves. And so back to the question that my good brother uh, Zumbi was saying, why so many of our people don't move to that next level? And, And I was saying it's been a learned behavior that after so many times, you look at the black farmers, men who till the soil for a couple hundred years, two or three hundred years, the black farmers have been creamed. <laughs> I mean, they, they're still trying to get their money. <laughs> 20 or 30 years later, still trying to get their money. And so when you see that happen, eventually it changes your aspirations. Now, we got to get beyond that because the law of mind says you got to see it, you got to feel it, and you got to have faith. But we have these things working against us. So when we say, how do we end up like this? This is how we end up like this. But this is why it's so important, the work we're doing, because we are all like Moses. Somebody's got to lead our people out of this situation to the promised land. And so the message that you're giving to the world, the message that we're sharing is critical because it can help black people understand what they have to do but it can help white people understand what they have to do. And this spiritual capitulation is powerful. Brother Zumbi, you were talking about reparations, the three principles on which we can get through this thing. The spiritual solution is number one, you got to acknowledge it. As long as people will not acknowledge that there's systemic racism and all the things that have happened to us have happened to us. I tell one of my white friends, I said, you know, you and I have been friends for 25 years. Right. If you if you came to me and you said, man, that country club out there, they are prejudiced. They treat me badly. They give me bad food. They won't let me on the golf course. And you told me all these things about that country club. You know what I would say to you? How can I help? I come to you and I tell you, I'm, I'm shot by the police. My schools are edgy. They're defunding them. All kinds of terrible things are happening to me. And and can you help? And you go like, well, I don't think that's true. I mean, there's no systemic racism. I, I mean, I, I, you know, they start making excuses. So I tell them, I said, I can't. If you come to me as a human being and tell me they're treating you badly at the country club, I'm going to accept it out of my relationship with you. But if I come to you and tell you or you see uh, what's happening in my community, you want to go into a period of denial and tell me that it's not happening, that it's not systemic. There's just one or two bad apples. But when you look at the big picture, it's systemic to the core. So acknowledgement is number one. Number two, you got to ask forgiveness. Every spiritual principle, every spiritual uh, uh training, teaching says that once you have done trespass against somebody, you got to acknowledge it first and then you got to ask forgiveness. And people can't do it until white Americans can say, acknowledge it and ask forgiveness. I ain't asked for your money. Just say, hey, man, it was wrong. My grandfather was wrong. I had one fellow say, I can't second guess my grandfather. He thought it was right at the time. I said, murder was wrong then and it's wrong now. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) What's the problem? (laughs) Mm. 
But that's that spiritual dilemma that many white people find themselves. And then the third principle is what they call atonement. And atonement atonement embodies reparations. Reparations, if atonement was a basketball and there's a light here in my ceiling, reparations is like the circle cast by that basketball on the ground. In other words, atonement is much bigger than reparations. Atonement is how can I make you whole again? How can I make it right for you again? How can I put you where you should be? Can you imagine where America would be if after the Civil War they embraced black folks? All of the talent that they could have taken advantage of and embraced. I mean, we would be a a trillion dollars wouldn't even hold it, man. We'd be writing personal checks for a trillion dollars. Okay. <laughs> yeah. That, that, wow. I, I really love what you're saying. So if I were to pick up solving the race issue in America, H.J. Harris. Yes. What, what would I learn? You would learn three things. One, the history. We try to... The first part of the book is laying out the history so that we can get a put us in a historical context to say these things have happened. You know, between 18, um, I think, 65 and 1950, there was roughly a black person hanged every nine days. Over 4000 black people were hung in America that that the. The United States Congress, as late as 2005, would not still um, condemn lynching. <laughs> okay, so to learn the history the, about Black Wall Street, about uh, the coup of 1898, that's part one. Part two is to get an understanding that the things that have not worked and the impact of them, such as the court cases, how the court goes along with the prejudice of the people, the psychological damage, the hundredth monkey phenomenon, where we talk about the fact that uh, when you train up a slave, that's like some serious behavior modification. And that's like trauma, slave trauma. And that has never really been addressed in our people. And then third, we talk about the way forward. Dr. King's last book says, where do we go from here? Chaos or community? And we say we have got to acknowledge the past, acknowledge what has happened, ask forgiveness as a people together, individually and collectively, and then third, make it right. To, to, to We set up a commission to study how the President Kennedy was killed, so let's set up a commission now of how can we make it right? We call it the Atonement Commission, okay? To say, what do we have to do? Do we need to put money in education? Do we need to do this? Some of the things that I see the Biden Commission is kind of, you know, like stabbing at is some of the things that might be helpful. But to really put your mind to it, one of the spiritual principles, it says this, seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened, ask, and it shall be answered. So we have to start seeking the solution. We have to start asking those hard questions of what can I do to help? We have to start knocking on those doors of power to say, hey, you you no longer can do what you've been doing. You have got to look at where we're at. 
I mean, isn't it ironic that the one day they finally convict a police officer? Think about this. Think about it. There's a section in the book called Thank God for Television. And, and what it says is that there had been many civil rights struggles up to the 60s. But what made the difference was television. That the world could see the dogs tearing the young kids' flesh off their bones. The world could see Emmett Till's face in the casket. The world could see the hole that Schwerner Goodman and Viola Luiso that they were buried in a hole in the ground. The world could see it. If it were not for that, the civil rights movement probably would not have gotten the results that it had gotten. So now we have George Floyd. If that young 17-year-old had not taken that video, you remember how the cops wrote it up? A black man was killed, seemed like he died of uh, what some health issues. They said nothing about somebody kneeling on his neck for, for nine minutes. And isn't it interesting? The young lady only got eight, what was it, eight minutes and 29 seconds. It was longer than we thought. If that young lady had not gotten that video, would the verdict have been the same? That's the question. And so what we, as we go out through the end of the book, we say that now the internet shows to the world the truth of America, the contradictions that exist. And we must now collectively either solve it or we will perish. And so I have to put it back in people's hands. The, the good white people have to stand up. They can't stand sit back anymore on the sidelines. I, you know, I used to say it's, our, it's not our problem. We got a lot to do. But he who has the gun rules. He who has the goal rules. White people have the gun. They have the goal. They also have the Bible and they have a conscience and they have consciousness. And there are a lot of white people now that need to stop sitting on the sideline and say, hey, I need to learn more. I need to get a better understanding because clearly after 300 years, this stuff is still happening. We convict a man on a, on a, what, a Monday or a Tuesday and by within the next day, a black man is shot in the back up in, in um, Elizabeth City, North Carolina. While the trial is going, a young boy is shot in the, killed in the car. And, and, and so it's systemic to the point of spiritual depravity that we got to kneel down and pray together, white people and black people, and solve this thing. That's you, you what know, the book is about. <laughs> you know, as you were talking, I, I go back to when Malcolm made his second uh, pilgrimage to Mecca, his Hajj. Yes. And from my opinion, this is my opinion, I think that there were two things that Malcolm saw during his Hajj. I think he saw Islam's potential, and he saw humanity's potential. Yes. And what he was trying to do was, how do I get humanity, particularly African people, from where we are to where we, or where he aspired humanity to be? And somewhere in between, we lost him. Yes. Yes. Okay. Based on what you've seen in, in your lifetime and now as an elder, um, I know you talked about the steps that we can take, but 
individually as well as collectively, you know, what from a spiritual aspect, what steps can we begin to take? Because it's a huge task of trying to awaken humanity to its humanity. But from an individual point, what what can we do? Where can we start? You know, we have a great model we have in South Africa. Think about it. South Africa was about as brutal as you could be in the modern world, okay, against black people. Nelson Mandela stayed in jail 27 years. And so to bring that resolution about that truth commission, which is really the, 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 the acknowledgement process, and so I think around the countries and the churches are going to have to take the lead, especially the white churches, to have hearings, to have uh, truth commission type hearings where they invite in their black brothers and white brothers and sisters and, and begin to say, listen, let's look at this. Let's look at the history. Let's not make excuses. Let's see it for the truth of what it is. And so that starts that process the individual process and the collective process. Once you get enough individuals doing that, we hit something called critical mass, where once it's it's almost like that march on the Capitol on uh, January sixth. There were a lot of people, you know. I remember going to the march on Washington in nineteen sixty three, and I know we were afraid that. The cops were going to come and they were going to beat people up. I mean, there was all that trepidation there. And if that had happened, I don't know how I would have responded, but it would have been chaotic. Yeah. But I would have gone along with whatever was going on. That's what I'm saying. So how much of that whole situation was intentional? How much was people just going along with it? Well, when the spiritual leaders began to take, take the leadership role of the Bible that we say we believe in, then they're going to have to have these listening groups. They're going to have to start representing and championing for truth. It is not black lives matter, but it's like human lives matter, but not use it as a deflection. <laughs> you know, you know, like somebody said, well, black lives matter, but all lives matter. That's a deflection. But to start working at that thing together now to say, let's get look at the, each other as human beings and let's work from the principle, number one, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So anything that I don't want done to myself, when you tell me that's being done to you, I'm going to stand with you to end it. Be the change exactly. that you want to see in the world. And I have a saying. I use the term revolution, but I can say transformation begins in the mirror. Yes, okay. absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, man, I'm loving everything that I'm hearing. Take me through the development of these two books. Let's start with, uh, you know, solving the race, the solving the race issue in America. Uh, how did you start? developing that book? Well, you know, Brother Seku, I, I actually started writing the book about 12 years ago because I saw certain things in the political arena that were, was beginning to take place. 
And then when President Obama was elected, I, I stopped. Okay, I, I had gotten the book finished uh, to, at a level at that state. But when, when I saw that America elected a black man, a black man named, oh, you know, uh, uh, Barack Hussein Obama, <laughs> you know, when I saw America elect him president, I thought to myself, wow, it's done. You cannot, he's not there by black votes alone. He's there because white people, a significant number of white people voted for him. I think that was one of the highest turnout elections ever. Right, right. And I heard the rumblings, though, because if you, right after he was elected, all of a sudden you had this, I'm going to take our country back. And, uh, (laughs) you know, this, well, who took our country? And then I heard something there in the political process when the Republicans said, well, we're going to do everything we can to make him a one-term president. I've never heard them say that about any other president. They use after the election, everybody comes together and says, well, man, the election is over now. We can put aside our differences. We're going to work together to make a better America. And when I heard that, that started me thinking again. But then when President Obama was elected a second time, I was, I'm like, you know what? Whatever that negativity was, it did not win out. I remember, what was his name? Karl Rove, one of the uh, Republican uh, leaders. That election night, he couldn't even be cool. He kept saying, I don't believe it. I can't believe it. I, can't. I mean, it's like it defied imagination that a black man named Barack Hussein Obama could be elected twice. Mm. <laughs> okay. But let me tell you, from that point on, I realized the transformation. And as the election, his term began to wind down and the former president began to step up and you begin to hear really these racist, terrible things coming out of the white people. And it's that point that I realized, and especially during the the second part of President Obama's term, I mean, they did everything they could. I mean, stuff that they used to be for and they had been for for 100 years, they were against it just because he was a black man. I mean, they gave other reasons, but it's yeah. like, <laughs> so that's what really stimulated me to write the book. <laughs> oh, you know what? Uh, and, and Minister Zumbi, of course, is I'm going to toss the ball back in your court in a second, but it really, it really blew my mind during uh, Obama's second term when I saw the Republicans really saying, this is horrible. This shouldn't happen. This is taking America back. And I was like, y'all just did this stuff just before the man got in the office. And I started really seeing the hypocrisy in our bipolar (laughs) political system. You know, it's a whole lot of hypocrisy. And um, that, that was part of my awakening politically. You know, anybody who's watched the show knows that, you know, I grew up in a home that was primarily Democratic in voting. And then I started listening to Rush Limbaugh and I was like, you know what? He's saying some things that the Honorable uh, Elijah Muhammad said. He's saying Mm -hmm. some things that the uh, Honorable Marcus Messiah Garvey said. He's not saying them the same way and he's not using the same information, but he's saying some of the same things. And so for a short period of time, I kind of considered myself Republican. And then I said, these folks are both crazy yes these both these folks are both um hypocrites 
Yes. And one thing about Yeshua, Jesus, is Jesus fought really heavily against hypocrisy within Hebrew culture. Yes. You know what I'm saying? So when yes. I when I when I read through the uh the canonized holy bible, I'm just like, oh, there's another area of hypocrisy. There's yes. another area of hypocrisy. There's yes. another area. And every time Yeshua got riled up, it was when he was really dealing with the hypocrisy that he saw in his culture. You know, when he, it. yeah. And when he chased him out of the temple. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Now, most interestingly enough, a lot of, you know, people who consider themselves Christians, <laughs> they don't talk about the time when he was revolutionary. No. You know. No. <laughs> you know, no. he ran with some thugs. Yes. He sent the thugs out. The thugs did the thuggish things. And then he went and healed people. Yes. But yeah, but he, he sent the thugs out first. <laughs> yeah. 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 Go, go get the word out, man. Gather the people up. Well, you know, it's so interesting the, that the spiritual principles uh America has a great promise. I mean, if we if we just lived the words of our creation, the world believed it. You know, that this is one of the interesting things, and this is why this George Floyd and all the other things have hit, hit such a chord in the world, because the world believed in America. America, the world believed that the, everything that the press said and the pictures of America and then when you when the world saw George Floyd and the response and how this whole thing transformed, the world said, wait a minute, hold on. You know, this is a this is hypocrisy of the highest degree. And once we see that, we have to we have to resolve it. I mean, every one of these kingdoms, the Roman Empire, it lasted about four hundred years and then it went down. The British Empire went there. Is if you embody these contradictions in the the power structure and the culture, it dooms you to destruction. And so when we look at now where America is, when we see these cases coming up, when we see the legislatures working to disenfranchise people. If the courts don't give relief, think back now in the days of uh, Plessy versus Ferguson, if the courts don't give relief, you know, because it's clear that the, the, the Republican part, those who are working to disenfranchise black people, they, they are in lockstep. And so it's clear that it's going to have to go to the courts. But over these last four years, over the, really over these last eight years, the courts have been so transformed to become much more conservative. And so can you imagine what happens when they go to the courts and the courts uphold some of that um, gerrymandering, some of this rezoning, some of this redistricting, some of these laws to disenfranchise people? The courts did it before, <laughs> okay? From yeah. from 1902 on up, the Supreme Court just stayed. That uh, you know they can either do something positive or don't do anything at all. So that whatever they did is the law of the land, and that let let white Americans in power do whatever they wanted to black Americans, no matter what. 
I was at the Tuskegee University and I went to visit the the um, Tuskegee Airmen's Museum. There were a couple of Tuskegee Airmen named Herbert Harris. <laughs> and anyway, I'm in there and I'm reading and one of the things was saying how after they had gone over and they had fought and they had died and they had protected the airlines, the airplanes, so that the war could be won, when they got back to America and they got off the ship and they said, uh, there's a guy standing there, white peeps this way, Negroes over here. Separating y'all go over here and treating them bad again, and so when you see those kind of contradictions, you say this is a spiritual issue, and spiritual law says that the wages of sin is death. It does not necessarily mean, for, but the wages of sin, the wages of not being congruent with the words you say you believe, is that whatever you build will be built on shaky ground, on, sh- on shifting sand, and it will fall. Wow. Hmm. I'm just taking that in before I go to the next question. When, when we talk about empowerment, and I'm specifically talking for us as a people, you know, the Torah, the Bible, and Quran all speak about how we can speak things into existence. You know, the Torah says, and God said, let there be. In the Injil or the New Testament, it says in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God and the word became flesh. In the Quran, it says, kun fayakun, be and it is. How do we begin to, as the preachers say, how do we begin to speak life into one another? Because I think that's, another element of the solution that we're missing is that we're not speaking enough life into each other and into ourselves. It seems like there's always, you know, Dr. Francis Crest Wilson says you cannot be an empowered people when you use disempowering language to define and describe who you are. Yes. Yes. Brother, brother Zumbi, you have hit the nail on the head. We as black people, we have permitted a culture to develop among our young people that is totally dismissive and disrespectful, like the language. I mean, it's, it, I mean, when anytime you have to create two or three versions, depending on whether it's to be heard by the public, uh, and, and some of the stuff now you hear on the radio, you couldn't even imagine it being played before. Mm. When we look at our young people, you know, one of the beauties of the civil rights era was that it was the civil rights victories were really the young people were the foot soldiers. You know, when you look at the Greensboro Four, they, uh, Jojo McNeil, one of my classmates, had, only, had just turned 18. The other 18, 18, I think one was 19. These were young people and they had a young consciousness and they led the fight. Our young people now, the system, and it, I don't believe it has happened without um, great planning. But our young black people, our young black men, the system has put them either in the legal jeopardy, in educational jeopardy, and so that as we elders, and as I'm passing the ball to you all, 
the next group for you to pass it to is going to need a lot of work. And so we got to start working with the language, how you speak about yourself, the N-word, the, the things that people call one another, the young people. I mean, it's, it, it, it's, it's just amazing. And, and they, one of the principles of success, the, the law of command, that's really what it is. And it says, whatever you say is what it is. If you say it, you are it. Whatever you put after I am, you are. And so when we look at how our young people talk about themselves uh, and how they talk about each other, so that's something we got to work with. That's number one. Number two, we really, our leaders, spiritual leaders in particular, have to really work to touch the young people again. We can't write them off now. We got to go up in there and find them. And start bringing them out. We got to start really working with the parents because better parents make better children. Number three, your book is so critical because, as they say, sooner or later, it's all about the money. <laughs> okay, sooner or later, it's all about the money. And so, if we don't teach our people to have an understanding of money. And, and let's just say the understanding of assets, period. Money is just one of our assets. And in, in chapter, we talk about the law of value. In chapter eight, our time is our most valuable asset. It's more valuable than the money. We can replace the money, but we can't, not one iota replacing the time. To look at the value of relationships, that one of the slave paradigms has taught us to distrust each other to even hate each other, to disrespect each other, to recognize that once we acknowledge that this has been the message, now let's fix that. Let's, let's, let's go back to the collective economics. Let's go back to the idea of taking those by the hand and guiding them to where they have to go. So this economics is going to be key because if they say, trust me, the, people, the powers that be are not going to give you a grant to finance your liberation. <laughs> so we have to finance it ourselves they've worked against us but when you start teaching money management when you start teaching approaches to investment and teach people how to use their money as a, an instrument of power money is a powerful servant Ashe. but a terrible master Ooh, amen on that Eric. amen on that <laughs> Hashtag that part. <laughs> <laughs> that part. That part. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Woo. Mm. I'm sorry. Mm. I, get, I get I get excited sometimes, fellas. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, excited Indeed. we all are. Excited we all are. So look, uh, I'm looking on your Facebook page right now, and. Whoever set you up in cyberspace set you up sweet <laughs> because you have Dr. Success Man. So this is your Dr. Success Man page on Facebook. I'm, I'm loving this. Uh -huh. Dr. Success Man. And then you also have your regular. And this yes. is Stedman Graham. Yes, Stedman Graham. Okay. Okay. You know what? I, I don't think we really understand how powerful and influential 
and accomplished Stedman is. So, um, well, Stedman is. I've interviewed Stedman a number of times for my podcast. We spend time together. We're really Sandra is Stedman's cousin, and uh, so I'm a part of the family through uh, relationship. And gotcha. uh, yes, and what I have seen, I have really grown. You know, so he has lived. So often people see him in Oprah's context. But as a man himself, he's been a powerful man in uh, working uh, with athletes to help get them uh, more literacy, financial literacy, helping athletes understand. It's like the, the first book we wrote was called How to Make Money in Music. This was like in the 70s, I think, 78. And because so many of the musicians did not understand the business of music. And so Stedman's done a lot of work with athletes to help them understand the business of being an athlete. I mean, he was a basketball player himself, but he's done a lot of work there. And he's done a lot of work with young people in the uh, Native American community and many other communities with um, real financial literacy, understanding uh, the principles of empowerment. So he, he's, been, he, yeah, he's been a good man. Good stuff. Good stuff. And then we have a third Facebook page. <laughs> Life Skill Institute. Well, the Life Skill Institute is, I like to look at it as a learning portal. I do a, every morning at eight o'clock, I read from the 12 Universal Laws of Success. And I just take a little piece and we talk about it for about 10 or 15 minutes. And so the Life Skill Institute has been our training arm. We've done uh, home study courses. We, for a long period of time, we used to do a lot of workshops with parent empowerment. We worked with the housing authority, with the boards of education, with the um, um, uh, welfare department to help empower people to take their lives into their hands and create the life of their dreams. One of the most rewarding things, man, I'll be somewhere and I'll run into somebody and they'll say, oh, Mr. Harris, I was in your class on leadership when we talked about self-image, attitude, enthusiasm, goal setting, life planning, time management. He had all of our topics right down to the T. He said, man, they helped get me here and get me there. So uh, the Life Skill Institute has done a lot of training. We train uh, people in network marketing. Uh, I'm a network marketing trainer. I, for the last 11 years, I've worked with a company that Montel Williams got me involved with, uh, anti-aging product. But I look at a lot in network marketing as a way to help uh, African-Americans create a business and create income with, a, with, a, with I say, not a major investment and following a plan. And so I train on network marketing, um, part of the, uh, you know, million dollar earners club who've earned over a million dollars in, in the industry. But this, after this pandemic, I've been putting a little more time into helping people get a solid business that they can, that can take care of themselves regardless of the pandemic and some of the other things, you know, in the days, uh, Madam C.J. Walker, when you see a need, you feel it, okay? When when she and the other uh, female la ladies who were in the hair products industry, when they realized that when 
black women were trying to straighten their hair and do all these kind of things and with their skin care and whatnot, they made millions. I mean, when you think back and you look at somebody like an Annie Malone who had 45,000 representatives. <laughs> yo, 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 yo. Too many of us watch the uh, Netflix book of lies called Self-Made about the uh, the honorable ancestor, you know, Madam C.J. Walker. And yes. in that book of lies, they portrayed Annie Malone as a as a devil. They just treated her like she was mm. a devil. And I don't know if you saw it, Minister Zumbi, but I, I did a whole... Right, well, don't waste your time watching it, man. Because <laughs> that's a, that's an interesting advertisement. Don't watch this. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll tell you this. I'll tell you. I'll tell you this. You know who to blame for that? that. Two people: uh -huh. Octavia Spencer and LeBron James, because they were the co-executive producers of that. Really? Mm -hmm. Now they should know better. Madam C.J. Walker. Studied with Annie Malone. I know. And so I'm watching it and I'm like, oh man, this thing is the bomb. I'm loving every moment of right. it. And then that was episode one. Episode two, I'm like, oh man. And I'm like, wow, this this Annie Malone person is like the devil incarnate. So mm. I went on Google and I was like, oh. Yeah. And oh then no. This is not the woman that I learned about back in the day in elementary school. This is some made up junk about her, you know, the, yo, that, and after that moment, I kind of really took a hard look at everything in that book of lies called yeah. Self Made. And you know that, so yeah, but, but well, you're you right. Know, one of the great barometers of that, the truth of that, what you're saying, um, Booker T. Washington, Never liked Madam C.J. Walker because, oh, really? yeah, he really didn't, because he felt a lot of people knew or felt that she had stolen her stuff from Annie Malone. And for mm. that reason, he always, he he was not a fan of hers at all. And many people in that, uh, what was his, the, the, the Negro Business League um, did not uh, gravitate to uh, Madam C.J. Walker. So, uh that kind of gives you an idea of the people who, how they felt about her at the time. <laughs> they were there. They were the ones dealing with it. So, uh, yeah, man. So, but, you know, he who had, when they, it's always about his story. Whoever's financing it, they tell the story from the perspective that they want to tell it. Mm. And and that's, uh, that's unfortunate, but, uh, but, what you what you're talking about, uh, Zumbi, brother Zumbi, is that when we think about people like Annie Malone, uh, there's there's a whole group of them that women who saw a need and fulfilled it. She said, "Women are always gonna want to look good." <laughs> I, don't <care. laughs> I don't care what is going on. <laughs> I applaud that. Yes. I applaud that. Yes. Keep looking good, sister. So you can be on the good, you can be on the way to the poorhouse, but you still want to look good yeah. on the way. Okay. <laughs> wow. Hey, I, I kind of want to bring this great time we've had together um, mm. to an end because there's a couple of things that need to happen. Yes. All right. One of the things that needs to happen is 
people need to pick up the 12 universal laws of success. All yes. right. People need to do that. All right. So the other thing that needs to happen is people need to go on Amazon and well, let me, let me jump back. This is our, our page on YouTube and on YouTube, we can find that video we did about that book of lies that Madam CJ Walker thing, but all right, pick up solving the race issue in America, HJ Harris. All right. And so those are the two things that we definitely have to do. We also need to make sure that if you haven't done it, you pick up GOAT. Yes, yes. I got my copy. Yes, yes. <laughs> I, I got my copy. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. So, yes, yeah. I have mine. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I would I would hope you have yours. I would definitely hope <laughs> that you have yours. You know, you talked a little bit earlier about the black massacres. Uh and, and just to be sure, when we use the term black, we're not stupid. So, you know, for our uh, our Hebrew Israelite brothers and our Moorish American brothers and those who are waking up. Yeah, we don't really think that we're talking about a skin color or a city called black or planet called black or stick. And we're not talking about legal status. All right. So, all right. So let me go back to that. When you talk about the things we need to do and you talk about solving the problems, the race issue in America, I look at this situation and I think I can find the answer in your book, in your lectures to addressing this situation. Yes. yes. But this is one of the things that I think we really need to put a lot of time into. Now, Ida B. Wells, <laughs> you know, I salute that sister. I love what she said. I love what she said. I love the fact that some things need to turn over then things need to turn over. I love that. But I really want to make sure we find a way to address that. So even though I want people to pick up the book, I just want you to talk just for one minute on how we can address that with the spiritual principles you've talked about. Very good. Number one, that white people and black people have basically two very parallel projects. Number one, black people have to really look at what we need to do to create a mindset that will give us, put us in the right position. You know, Carol Taylor wrote a book about how to be arrested. Uh, she had a she had a, a, a an experience with the police and to teach um, our black men, our black young people, how to be arrested, how to interact with the cops. You know, think, cops do things that should be done, that shouldn't be done to anybody no matter what. But also to recognize that when when I, when I'm approached by a cop, I have a certain way of dealing with it. There's there's a certain way you you have to understand the game. Okay, that's number one. Number two, white people need to start stepping up and no longer sit on the sidelines. Acknowledge that it's a systemic problem, and start taking action. Number one, to get their legislators to start writing their legislators. You need to pass this Justice Reform Act to challenge their ministers. Hey, you know, we need to start talking about this as a church. We need to make a statement. One of the beautiful things after the civil rights era of the 60s, churches like the uh, Unitarian Universalist Church, they came out with platforms saying uh, that the, the, 
beef. Government should not give tax exemption. When, when many of the jurisdictions, especially in the South, when they forced school integration, they took the white kids out of school and put them in the private schools. They now call them charter schools, but they were church schools. And they came out and said, don't give them a tax exemption. If they're going to take their money out, they'll finance it themselves. The taxpayers will not finance it. And so when white people start standing up like that, it's, 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 it's good to say, hey, I understand. And a hopeful thing is when you look at the people out there marching on the streets for George Floyd, for the man up in, uh, in Elizabeth City, and for many of the other injustices that have taken place, you see a lot of young white people. And so we need more of that. And to begin to focus that, the demonstration is one thing, but now operation is another. To start, hey, it, I, I'm here, but now let's call your congressman. He can't come out of his office without us saying, hey, you need to go on and vote like that. Let's organize now. I hope Stacey Abrams gets the Nobel Prize because she's done more to transform this country than anybody's done in a long time. And so to start that process, to be, be to become affirmative about the justice that we say we represent and affirmative about making that justice relative to everybody. Okay, Brother Zumbi, your last question and last statement for tonight, Brad. Hmm. Last question, last statement. All I can think of is transformation begins in the mirror. Mm. It begins in the mirror. It doesn't begin in the street. It doesn't begin in City Hall. It begins with who you see in the mirror. Because you have to transform and revolutionize yourself in order to make the necessary changes in the world. So everything begins with who you see in that mirror. Well, well, hashtag that. Transformation begins <laughs> in the mirror. <laughs> oh, that, that's the new hashtag. Hashtag that. <laughs> wow. Man, Yo, I, I have I'm, enjoyed this. Thank you. I have too. I've learned. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, I've spent time with a millionaire mentor. Uh, you know, you talked about network marketing and, uh, you know, I'm involved with my econ and my mm. econ is a platform that helps people to address credit concerns, but it does have a little bit of a network marketing portion to it. So at the end of the tonight, you know, you're going to see this commercial where I talk about how we do credit fixes. We help with tax resolution. We lend private money to real estate investors and we do debt consolidation and that particular platform does have opportunity. So when I saw that you were a mentor in the area of network marketing, which many of us move away from, we're like network marketing, that's a scam network. And I'm like, okay. When they like, well, it's a pyramid. I said, well, when you go to work, you have a boss and you might have two assistants under that boss. You have a whole bunch of work. That's a pyramid. And People of African descent should love pyramids. We just shouldn't do pyramid schemes. So mm -hmm. <laughs> it's a, mm -hmm. if it's a scheme, stay away from it. But, uh, <laughs> well, um, you so, know, one of, one of the things that I really am committed to is that the network marketing, I'm one of those who stay with a company. I've been with this company 11 years. 
Mm. and have created an organization where I have at least 22 people who are making at least 100000 a year. And the interesting thing, though, is that not a single one of them looks like me. And I want to really work on that. And I have helped many of our folks get to a certain plateau. And I've concluded that it's that network marketing is really for our is personal development in action. That there's certain things we have to learn, like how to overcome the fear of rejection. Because that's what takes most of us out, man. You you get rejected five or six times and it's like nobody wants this. You could be you could be selling air and you you run into six people who don't want any air. And there are many of us that will get out because, you know, in 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 the uh, in the good book in the in uh, Brother Zumbi's book, one of the key things about business is that persistence. You know, like every business course will tell you that people don't buy until the fourth or fifth contact. They teach it in real estate. They teach it in every and to recognize network marketing is sales, and so. If a person says no once, no twice, that if you understand that how to keep presenting it, if they're still listening, you keep talking. And so many people quit too soon. You know, if somebody comes to a meeting four times, they want to do it. They just haven't heard the right reason yet. And so, and, and, and the other thing that get our people away from immediate gratification. So often the picture of network marketing is big to get to join on Monday and have $100,000 by Wednesday. If not this Wednesday, then next Wednesday, okay? And it just doesn't happen. Like It took us four and a half years to get to the top of our company. And we built it in a very solid fashion. So that's what I'm going to be doing now. I'm looking to uh, reach out to other, I mean, I'm I'm training anybody, but I'm particularly interested in African-Americans who would like to be entrepreneurs who would like to be trained by somebody who's been there and a program that can work for them where the only limitation is your own imagination. I mean, we have people in our business that make a million, a million and a half a year, you know? And so uh, that's, that's the possible, that's what's possible. And we just have to, I'm, I'm really, I'm really committed to it now, you know, to put aside a certain amount of that valuable asset that you talked about time to taking two or three people each month, not a big bunch. And I've set up a training system for them so that over a period of a year that we can say, hey, I've created a nice solid income. I like to call it walkaway income, a nice solid income that's generated by product sales of people who like what I have. Okay. It's not I'm a hustle. It. Yeah, it's not a hustle. It's not a bustle, but it's a system. And when you have a system, you think about this. One of the greats in network marketing was a guy named, um, oh, he was in Amway. And uh, his name will come to him in it. But he was telling how after like 25 years, his residual income was about $6 million a year. When he died, I think that's what his wife, uh, the estate, was receiving. And uh, Bill Britt, Bill Britt was his name. And someone asked Bill Britt, they said, well, you know, in the early days, they said Amway was a scam. They went through the various lawsuits, but they said it was a legitimate business. 
Amway does almost $12 billion a year now. And so they asked Bill Britt, what was the secret to his success? And he said this. He said, I presented my opportunity to 1,200 people. 900 of them said no. He said 300 of them said yes. Of the 300 who said yes, only 82 of them did anything. <laughs> of the 300, of the 82 that did a little something, 35 of them did a lot. They got to that point of making 100,000 a year. He said, but out of that 35, 11 of them made me a millionaire. So that's one in a hundred. And that's half of the system, the secret to network marketing, to be persistent, to have a system, and to don't quit. Don't quit. When things go wrong, you must not quit. So, uh, hey, we want to thank Minister Zumbi, author of The Goat Gospel of Afronomics <laughs> Theology. I almost lost it there for a second. <laughs> <laughs> Minister Zumbi, thank you again, brother. I was like the goat thank and you. LL LL Cool J popped in my mind for a second. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, he's a goat as well. Uh salute KRS one, Dead Press. Um salute to the OG goat, the old goat, uh, and the elder, the elder goat, yeah. Dr. Herbert Harris. Salute that. Salute that. We're gonna be talking about uh you know, you're yes, yeah, solving the race issue in America. You can pick it up on Amazon, you can pick it up in your melanated bookstore. I'll be picking it up at Positive Vibes, that's the bookstore that uh, my partner owns. So, uh, I'll be picking it up there. That's where I picked up the gospel of Afronomics theology. Yeah. And uh, I'll tell you what, we'll also be talking because I would love to help you, I would love to have you help our team in my econ to do some great things. So it's time to close up. Hey, you've been checking out learning and definitely earning from getting on code with the get on code show today. We had Dr. Herbert Harris. Of course we had the goat minister zombie <laughs> and it's your man, Mr. Empowerment Seiko Varner. Thank you. Be blessed. Be a blessing. Stay blessed. This show was brought to you by Positive Vibes Incorporated, our consulting services. We do credit fixes. We do tax resolution. We lend private money and debt consolidation. So if you need some of these services, we're waiting here for you. Credit fixes, tax resolutions, private money, and debt consolidation. Make sure you call Positive Vibes Incorporated.